The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Here we go. Psalm 76 to the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. Selah, you are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence? When once you are angry, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, Selah, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 2 finally. It's uh, verses 1 through 12. It's entitled, You Have Skirted This Mountain Long Enough. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elat and Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Amim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Amim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Okay, as I said last week, I'll say it again in case somebody's watching online that has not attended with us before. Everything that we see in these sermons is something that actually happened. In reality, these people really went through the wilderness. They were under punishment for 38 years. They're being told now to stop circling this mountain after all that time and head up to Canaan and go into the land. And this is 
typologically given to show us pictures of redemptive history, of what Jesus would do and of what would happen to Israel at the end of the days, okay, which is the point in history where we are at right now because they have now been returned to the land and they are being prepared for their meeting with Jesus Christ. So these are typological as well as actual events which occurred. As Moses continues to recount the events of Israel's past since leaving Mount Horeb, he now turns to the ending of their time of punishment. In this, other than a single verse which speaks of many days, he skips over all of the events of the past 38 years of Israel's existence. Think of that, 38 years, and all we hear is many days. They were simply wasted years of waiting for a promise that was sure to come, but not for any of those who were under the sentence. They had to be taken out of the way while the years passed by in unrecorded silence. The memory of the events would live on with the people, but the importance of them to the greater plan of redemption is not even worth mentioning. And yet, within the words of today's verses is the simply stated note that during all of that time, the Lord had continued to bless the people and look over them. It is a note of grace that should not have been unexpected. The Lord promised that even in their punishment, he would preserve them, and he was faithful to do so. Our text verse comes from Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? One of the most common communications that I get is that of people who wonder if the Lord has forgotten them. I'm talking about saved believers. If those same people would heed the story of Israel's history, they might not feel any less troubled in their affliction, but they would certainly feel less troubled in their convictions. In other words, things may be so tough that they truly consume your joy, but they should never be so tough that you question if the Lord is there with you in your trials. The lesson of Israel is the lesson of the believer. They are a template for us to look at and see the faithfulness of God in all situations. Here we are. We're adopted sons and daughters of God because of the giving of his son for us. If God continued to tend to Israel, even when they had turned their back on that, do you honestly believe that he has or he even could neglect you? May we never consider it. Have faith and trust in the Lord even when the whole world has collapsed around you. He is there and your situation is not out of his control. He has allowed it in your life for his own reasons, and I assure you, they are good reasons. Be sure of this. It is another truthful lesson that we can find in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is the descendants of Esau. It's verses 1 through 7. Then we turned and journeyed. That's verse 1. This is exactly what the Lord had told Israel to do before their willful act of disobedience of turning to fight those in Canaan. They were told this in Numbers 14, 25. Moses repeated that in Deuteronomy 1, verse 40. There he said, But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. They had failed to trust that the Lord could deliver them, but when they came under sentence for that sin, they then added the sin of presumption and went to accomplish the deed themselves. The pattern was set, and it followed in the coming of Christ. 
The people failed to believe God's provision as found in Christ, and they came under the sentence of God's punishment. However, instead of accepting this, they added in their own attempt to obtain the promise apart from Christ. They codified Jewish law through the Talmud, and they relied on their own deeds known as teshuvah and mitzvot, repentance and supposed obedience to their law, in a futile attempt to restore themselves to God. However, that system can never restore man to God. The law was incapable of doing so. Adding in their own deeds could only make it worse. The people were and are to this day defeated. They were turned away from the promise. First one continues into the wilderness. As was explained in chapter 1, in the Bible, the wilderness signifies an uncultivated area, not specifically a barren desert. It is a place of God's grace and closeness to God, but it is also a place of testing. For some, such as Israel, the testing resulted in disobedience. For others, such as when Christ was tested, it is a place of fellowship through obedience. The wilderness and the law are closely connected because it is by law that testing is accomplished. Israel, under Moses, turned into the wilderness in exile for the execution of their punishment based on their disobedience. Israel, after Christ's work and still under the law, were turned into the wilderness in exile for the execution of their punishment based on the very law that Christ had fulfilled. They rejected him, and so the punishments of the law, which are closely detailed in Leviticus 26, which we went through in that sermon, were the stated remedy to someday lead them back to him. This turning into the wilderness was, verse 1 continues, of the way of the Red Sea. In being told to take their leave of the land of promise, by turning into the wilderness in the way of the Red Sea, an ominous hint of doom can be seen. In Hebrew, the Red Sea is Yam Suf, or Sea of the Ending. The sea is a place of confusion and turmoil. It is, as in Daniel, a picture of the confusion of the nations of the world. Here's what it says in Daniel 7. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, speaking of the masses of the people of the world. In Revelation, this is said of such things. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also, there was no more sea. The word suf comes from a verb meaning to cease or to end. That comes from a primitive root, which means to end or to perish. The people were sentenced to perish, and the path which they were to take signified exactly that. The people of Israel were told they were to perish, and here they are on the way to the Red Sea, the sea of the ending. The people of Israel rejected Christ, and they were set to perish among the chaotic nations of the world. The exile would not be short, and the people would suffer because of their failure to simply believe the Lord. In Numbers 14.35, the Lord said, In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And in John 8.24, the Lord said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You can see that which has been will be again. That which has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 1 continues, as the Lord spoke to me, Israel was given the choice of believing the Lord, who is the fulfillment of the law, and live or failing to believe and die by the curse of the law. They unwisely chose the latter, and so the Lord spoke to them of exile, punishment, and perishing in death. Thus, verse 1 continues, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. Venasav et har Seir yamim rabim. 
and we went around Mount Seir days many. This is the first time that this statement is made. However, it is given as a statement of fact. The implication is that they simply compassed about the mountain for the entire time that they were dying off in the wilderness, 38 years. The term many days is indefinite. It simply means all of the time that we were in this particular situation. This then encompassed a period of 38 years from the time that they departed the border of Canaan until the time they began their trek once again toward Canaan. These words here beg us to revisit the symbolism. Mountains in the Bible have various meanings, but ultimately they picture forms of government. There is in Isaiah the mountain of the Lord. Babylon in Jeremiah 51 is called the destroying mountain. Here we have Mount Seir, which has been what Israel is circled for an extended period during her exile. The meaning of the name Seir comes from the same as Se'ar, or hair. Thus it is Mount Hairy, or Mount Shaggy. The appearance of Seir is that of a hairy mountain because of the many low bushes that cover it. But, as has been seen many times, hair in the Bible pictures awareness, especially awareness of sin. For example, the sair, or hairy goat, is that which was given for sin in Leviticus. Hair was first seen in Genesis 25, verse 25, where it noted the birth of Esau. There it said he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. He was given as a picture of Adam, the man that was made and who had an awareness. So you understand the word made. I'm going to explain this in a minute or two, but I'll tell you now so you can remember it when you hear it a second time. The word made in the Bible is Asa. Esau and Asa are comparable. And so you see he is the man that was made. He's a picture of Adam, the man that was made and who had an awareness. This is especially so because of sin. In his sin, the Lord said of the man, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Jacob, on the other hand, was specifically noted as being smooth, implying not hairy. That was seen later in Genesis 27:11, saying, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Jacob pictured Christ, the man without sin. Thus, encircling Har Seir, or Mount Seir, meaning Mount Harry, is the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Israel, exactly as he had spoken in John 8:24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Israel's exile was not under the government of Christ, which they had rejected, but under the government of man under sin, meaning the law. Moses is recounting a true narrative of Israel's wandering, speaking of Mount Seir, but he is also prophetically laying out the future of Israel after the coming of Christ. Does everybody see what I'm talking about? Going around Mount Seir is a picture of them going around the nations under sin because of an awareness, all right? The introduction of this note now concerning the wilderness, the way of the Red Sea, and Mount Seir is astonishingly and sadly seen in the history of Israel since Christ's coming. Verse 2, and the Lord spoke to me saying, Ve'yomer Yehovah ele lemor, and Yehovah said, not spoke, said to me saying. As has been explained before, the word devar or spoke is similar to, but not the same as amar or said. The first conveys the idea of instruction to be followed. The second includes a broader thought of participation by the one being instructed. If your Bible says spoke there, please make a note. It says said. That is the case here. Verse 3, you have skirted this mountain long enough. The words are similar to Deuteronomy 1 verse 6. 
the Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the same location given a different name. It was where the law was given. In Galatians 4, Paul explicitly shows that Sinai pictures the law and the place of the law, which is the earthly Jerusalem. That's in Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The idea we can get from these statements of Deuteronomy 1 and 2 is first, you have been under law long enough, turn and head towards the promise in Christ. That was said at Mount Sinai. And then after they rejected him, you have been under punishment for rejecting the Lord long enough. Therefore, verse 3 continues, turn northward. Penu lachem tzafona, turn you northward. The noun tzafon or north comes from the verb safan, meaning to hide by covering over, treasure up, conceal, and so on. That which has been hidden away and treasured up for Israel is now to be pursued. It is an event which has, in its truest sense, begun for them in recent years. Israel is gaining an awareness of Christ, even if the number of them is small at this point. However, they as a whole will come to know him in his fullness when he is finally revealed to them. The words here anticipate that wonderful day. We will all be gone at the rapture, but someday the nation of Israel is going to find their Messiah. They're going to see that it is Jesus, but they're going to suffer in the meantime. It says in the book of Zechariah that two-thirds of them are going to die in the process, but they will, the remainder will be brought through, they will be refined, and they will be a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 4, and command the people saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. The narrative here seems confusing when put side by side with the same account in Numbers 20. In fact, it seems like there's a standing contradiction. There it said, please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Adam said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. It says they weren't allowed to go through Edom, but here it at first seems that this wasn't so. However, in the account from Numbers, Moses said in verse 17, let us pass through your country. In that, he first used the term Be'artzecha, or your land. Edom refused that request. Later, in that verse, he uses the word Gebulecha, or your border. However, Edom told them to take a hike, and so they did. The words here in Deuteronomy are after the fact. The Lord says here, Atem oberim bigbul achechem. You are about to pass over the border of your brothers. It says nothing of the land, only the border. 
Thus Israel, instead of continuing on through Adam, turned back and skirted the border of Adam, not attempting to breach the borders of the land. This is seen later in Judges chapter 11, where it says, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Adam and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. The perceived difficulties of such passages are often because of translational errors or because the narrative is so widely dispersed throughout the pages of Scripture. In the end, there is nothing contradictory here. Rather, Israel, while heading towards Canaan, first petitioned Edom to pass through. Edom refused, Israel turned back, and the Lord told them that they were going to skirt their land and not pester them. And they did just that. The reason for the coming words of verse 5 is because, verse 4 continues, and they will be afraid of you. This was prophesied in the Song of Moses from Exodus 15. It says there, Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. The people of Edom would have heard of the Lord's deliverance of Israel. Even though it was quite a few years earlier, that would still be a story frequently repeated by the people. The people who would encounter them later would be afraid of their coming and act in a hostile manner towards them. This is exactly what occurred, and so the Lord said, verse 4 continues, Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, and watch yourselves exceedingly. The slightest provocation was bound to turn into a very large problem, and so all of the people were told to conduct themselves accordingly. They had already been warned away. If they could not follow the eastern borders of Adam, they would be forced to return back into the wilderness. And so, verse 5, do not meddle with them. Here is a new word translated as metal. It's gara. It signifies to stir up. It comes from a primitive root meaning to grate, and thus it figuratively means to anger. In Daniel, it is translated as mobilize or wage war, and that may be the sense here. The verb is in the reflexive form, and so it means to excite oneself against another. Israel was not to provoke Esau, and they were not to make any threatening actions against them. Verse 5 continues, for I will not give you any of their land. The division is to be complete. What has been given to Esau is to remain theirs. Israel is on a trek elsewhere, and none of those who are going there will remain behind to occupy the land of Edom. Verse 5 continues, no, not so much as one footstep. The Hebrew here is much more expressive. Admirach kaf ragel, not as much as a tread of the sole of a foot. This is another new word found only here in scripture, midrach, or foot place. It comes from the verb darach, which means to tread the foot. The people of Israel were not to be given a single place for a foot to tread from Edom. Later, Edom and Israel will be back and forth in war, so it must be that the account here is given to fit certain typology. Verse 5 continues, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Again, a new word is found here, translated as possession. It is Yerusha. The word comes from Yarash, signifying to inherit or to take possession. Thus, it speaks of an inheritance. Mount Seir, standing as representative of the land of the Edomites, is given to them. It is their possession as a right. It is not Israel's inheritance. Here, in verses 4 and 5, are a picture of the land given to man. The name Esau is derived from the verb asa, to do or to make. 
It is the word used in Genesis 1 verse 26 when God said, let us make Asa man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Thus Esau pictures the made man Adam. The Lord said that he has given Har Seir, Mount Harry, meaning the government of awareness, the world to Esau, meaning Adam. The picture is accurately described in Psalm 115. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Man has been given the earth to dwell on. However, there are certain men who are given more. Just as the heavens are the Lord's, so the Lord's redeemed are given a heavenly inheritance. That is seen in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is but one example of such references to the heavenly anticipation and of the heavenly inheritance spoken of as belonging to those in Christ. Israel has been under punishment, but the Lord promised that they, after that time, would be brought into Canaan, the land of promise. It would be contradictory to give the land of Adam, meaning the earth, to the redeemed of the Lord. The stress in the words of this verse are to note without any doubt that the inheritance of the Lord's people is not a land of the consciousness of sin, but a land where sin is no longer imputed. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who has washed away our sins and who continues to do so because we are not under law, we are under grace. The whole thought of these verses is well summed up in these words from Hebrews 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Once again, thank God for Jesus Christ. The conscience of sin, meaning dead works, is cleansed in Christ. Thus, Israel is being prepared in type here in Deuteronomy, to be redeemed from the transgressions of the first covenant, meaning the law of Moses, brought into the new covenant, the Christ covenant, and in this they will receive the eternal inheritance, heaven. This is why the stress is seen concerning the possession of Esau. The ironic part is that while Israel was under punishment for rejecting Christ, guess what? The Gentiles were grafted into the commonwealth of Israel, But eventually, Israel will be brought back into right standing with God through Christ, receiving the benefits of the commonwealth that they had missed for so very long. Verse 6, you shall buy food from them with money that you may eat. There is something to be said for the life that God's people now live. And it is reflected in this verse here. Though there is the promise of a heavenly inheritance, there is also the reality of the earthly life that we live. Jesus spoke of it in his high priestly prayer noting that those who are his remain in this world, but are not of this world. Paul speaks of such things, noting that we can use the things of this world, but they are temporary and they are passing away. This is not a stretch of the analysis. The last time the word for buy food was used was back in Genesis, where the brothers of Joseph were sent to Egypt to buy grain. 
The word is shavar, and it comes from shever, meaning cracked grain rather than bar or purified grain. Following the details of the use of the words in Genesis showed a spiritual application. What is bought here is temporary and only sustains the body temporarily. That a spiritual picture is being made is even more evident with the next words. Verse 6 continues, And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. The word for buy here is a completely new, different, and rare word, kara. It is associated with the word kara, meaning to open or dig. In other words, it is probably saying that if a well is dug, silver would need to be paid for the water obtained from it. The idea here is that in this life, there is work involved in what we obtain, and what we obtain is temporary. Israel is passing by the land of Edom, but along the way they must purchase what they need and partake of what the land of Edom offers. Someday they will enter the promise and partake of what is everlasting. That is reflected in the words of Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's also seen in its ultimate sense in Revelation, saying, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 7, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. Despite being in the wilderness, Israel was not without work. They had artisans and craftsmen who exquisitely built the sanctuary, woodcrafters, goldsmiths, stoneworkers, workers in linen, incense, and so on. None of these skills would have been wasted, and even more, they would have been used, perfected, and passed on to the next generations. These things could easily have been traded or sold on caravan routes. They also had livestock, which would have multiplied abundantly over the years. With the Lord's blessing, even though they didn't deserve it for rejecting him, their wealth would have increased notably. And that was after having plundered the Egyptians when they left. That sounds like Israel in the world of the past 2,000 years, doesn't it? Likewise, Israel in exile around the world has continued to receive the Lord's blessing. Anywhere you go in the world, you will find well-established and wealthy Jews, whether they deserve it or not. They have the finest skills, and quite often their names reflect that. Neil Diamond, Joel Goldsmith, Adam Silver, and so on. The words here beautifully reflect the state of Israel as it is closing in on its meeting with destiny. It is Jehovah, despite their failure to acknowledge him, who has so blessed them. Further, verse 7 continues, he knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. The sense of the word yada, or no here, is that of tending to and watching. The Lord watched over Israel as they continued their walk through the long duration in the vast wilderness. His presence never left them, despite the sentence which lay over them for their rejection of him. Only one who is not looking or who isn't willing to look at Israel throughout the past 2,000 years can deny the parallel. The Lord has punished them, but he has also watched over them to preserve them. As he promised. Verse 7 continues These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. The number 40 in Scripture signifies a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. That's E.W. Bullinger stating that. Israel received all three of these from Egypt all the way through until where they are and where they are heading. 40 is the product of the numbers 5 and 8 and points to the action of grace, the number 5, leading to and ending in revival and renewal, the number 8. 
And this is exactly what is seen here in Deuteronomy and what is pictured in Israel's return from their time of punishment and exile. Through all of it, the Lord acknowledges that it is he who has been with them, tending to them, and preserving them, so that, verse 7 continues, you have lacked nothing. Lo chasarta davar. No have you lacked a word. The word davar, or word, by implication means a thing, a matter, or something like that. This is true for Israel in the wilderness. The Lord kept them, and they had no lack. However, I would suggest that for the typology of what this pictures, it asks for us to retain the original sense. Despite being in exile, Israel never lacked the word. Wherever they have gone, the word has been available to them. It is they who disregarded it, but the word has always been there with Israel, waiting for them to return to it and find what they had missed. You go to any synagogue around the world, and they will have a copy of the word in the back in an ark. Jewish people that I know that don't believe anything about God, the Bible, or any of that, guess what they have laying on their table in their house? They've got the Tanakh. They have the word. They have never lacked the word. They just simply need to pick it up and believe it is the problem. You have skirted this mountain long enough. Your time of testing has come to an end. Though the past years have been difficult and rough, into the land of promise, you I will send. And it is yours because the battle is already won. There is nothing for you to do but to trust and believe. All has been accomplished by my dear son. Because of him, you, I will never forsake and never leave. Trust in him and the promise is open to you. The victory is assured, so do not fear at all. There is nothing more that you need to do. Only upon my son, you must call. Our second thought today, the descendants of Lot. It's verses 8 through 12. Verse 8, And when we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elat and Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab. Israel's travels, after having been refused travel through Edom, took them south to Elat, the very tip of where Israel ends on the Red Sea today. They then went a few miles south and east to Ezion Geber, which is in Jordan today. From there, they turned north, went around Edom's land, and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. The plain, or Aravah, comes from Arav, meaning to grow dark. That is the same as Arav, meaning a pledge, as in a covering with a texture. In the giving of a pledge, there is, in a sense, an intermingling of two into one. Israel is being united again with the Lord and away from the sentence which they have been under. Elat comes from Ayil, meaning a ram, and thus one thinks of a protrusion. Hence, Elat means trees, because they protrude up. But Ayil also comes from the word Ul, meaning strength. One can think of the strength found in trees, leading to that idea. Without being dogmatic about this, I will always tell you when I'm not certain of a picture, but I believe this is correct. Without being dogmatic about it, does this signify that Israel is being strengthened for their final reconciliation with the Lord? Such may be the picture. Ezion is derived from atzeh, meaning the backbone. Geber speaks of a man. Thus, Ezion Geber is literally backbone of a man. As the backbone is the foundation of a man, one could logically assume that this means foundation of a man. The foundation of a man is what he was created from and for. When man gets away from contemplating those things, the Lord works to redirect him so that there will be reconciliation. 
This was the purpose of Israel's exile. Even though those in exile were destroyed along the way, the purpose of the exile was to bring the body of people back to him in a restored relationship. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The word translated as harass comes from a root meaning to cramp. Thus, this is speaking of besieging Moab. Israel is instructed to not besiege them nor face them in war. Moab means from father. Ar simply means city. It is used to speak of the entire land possessed by Moab. And Lot, who hasn't been seen since Genesis chapter 19, means covering, as if enveloping something. Without being dogmatic about this picture either, my supposition is that this is speaking of Gentile believers. They are from father, they are a gathering of people as reflected in a city, and the naming of Lot would signify the covering that they possess. It's a difficult verse, but this at least sounds correct to Charlie Garrett, especially because Paul speaks of the saved in Romans chapter 4, verse 7, as having their sins covered. Despite this, one reason for sparing Moab is because eventually a family of Bethlehem would move to Moab during a famine. There, a woman named Ruth would marry into it. And from there, and through circumstance, she came into the line of David, which eventually led to the Messiah Jesus Christ. Verse 10, the Amim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Now is introduced a parallel thought, which will take us to the end of our verses today. This land of Moab was once dwelt in by the Amim. The word is the plural of Emma or terror. Thus, these people are the terrors. They are noted for their greatness, their numbers, and their height. Thus, they were terrifying to those who came in contact with them. They were noted at the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, but they were eventually destroyed and the descendants of Lot filled their land. They are further described here as being as tall as the Anakim. As seen in Numbers, Anak means neck. Thus, they were either noted for their necks being very long or very thick, or for the adornments they wore on their necks. I would assume that listing them here now is not without purpose. Israel 38 years earlier, had swooned at the thought of facing the inhabitants of Canaan. Here's what it said then. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. But if the Amim, who were so great, so numerous, and so tall, even as tall as those dudes, could be defeated, then so could the Anakim. As Joshua and Caleb said of them at that time, they are our bread. For Israel to find this out is a way of bolstering their confidence in advance to prepare them for their entry into Canaan. And so the narrative continues. Verse 11, they were also regarded as giants, like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. Giants, or Rephaim, comes from a word meaning to sink down or to relax. This is similar to the Nephilim. That comes from Nafal, meaning to fall. However, Rephaim could also come from a word Rafa, meaning to heal. 
If so, then it indicates that their size came from being invigorated in some way, probably through special inbreeding. What this is telling Israel is that the Amim were of the same origins as the Anakim. The Amim got wiped out and were no longer a threat. As this happened by non-whopping people, then Israel was fully capable of whooping up on the whopping ones, the Anakim. But as more encouragement, we continue on. Verse 12, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place. Here is another group seen in Genesis 14 and who are again seen later mentioned in Genesis 36, Hahorim or the Horites. The word comes from Hor, meaning a hole or a cave. Thus, these people were troglodytes. Whether these were large people or not is not stated. With this group being listed within the genealogy of Esau as living in the land, Esau went in and assimilated with some of them to some extent, but as a people, they died out. The point, once again, is that cave dwellers would be very hard to drive out, and yet Esau was able to dispossess and destroy them. This knowledge was sure to strengthen Israel in their determination to follow suit and wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan. With that thought, we read verse 12, finishes with, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. The words here are in the past tense. Three possibilities have been suggested. One, it is spoken of as an accomplished fact, even though it is future. Two, it is a later insertion by a scribe, something that always galls me when people say that. Or three, this is speaking of the land east of the Jordan, which had already been won in battle. This is explicitly stated in Deuteronomy 3. The third option is certainly correct. The note would be pointless if it was a later insertion. Speaking of it in the future is unnecessary in relation to the names of the people who have just been mentioned. And so it is simply a note from Moses giving encouragement to the people to not lose heart as their fathers had. Rather, they were to trust the Lord and receive their inheritance. And this is a noteworthy place to end the verses. It was the Lord who directed the events of these nations as he himself had said, I have given the land to the descendants of Esau, and I have given the land to the descendants of Lot. He had further won the battles over Midian, Sihon, and Og for Israel. This parenthetic insert is prophetically given then to reassure Israel of today that he has already won the battles for them. He has sent Christ. Christ has defeated the foes, and all they need to do is, by faith, receive that, trusting in his provision. The land of promise is not unobtainable, but it cannot come through the works of the law. It must come by faith in the Lord. He has proven that this is true, and so, like Israel of today, we must also simply trust in him. The battle is not for us to win, nor can it be so. Christ fulfilled the law for us. Christ lived the sinless life that we simply cannot live, and Christ has covered us with his covering. We must trust that and keep trusting that with each step from salvation to glory. It is the Lord's battle to win. We are merely temporarily passing through to a land which is already prepared for us. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I hope all of you got the typology today because all of it points to what God is doing with Israel right now in redemptive history. Right now, while we are at this point in human history, Israel is back in the land and they are being prepared to come into the covenant, the new covenant with Jesus Christ and all of it. It's astonishing how 
absolutely closely everything mirrors word for word for word if you study the words there's treasure in them and it's showing us a truth that many many churches do not see God has never forsaken Israel many churches teach what's known as replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel that is never hinted at anywhere in Scripture in any way shape or form John Calvin and these other people that came up with these things are entirely incorrect they didn't understand Israel's dispersed around the world the land is a waste nobody would ever want to live there again they didn't understand that the Lord had a purpose for Israel and the reason why is because as I said last week if God breaks his covenant with Israel he'll break his covenant with you this is not the God of the Bible he promised them that he would save them that he would save them forever and I will tell you this the blessings of Leviticus 26 fell upon Israel. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. But God continued to bless them even after he cursed them, didn't he? Because as we saw in the sermon today, and as we've seen in history, they've continued to excel in everything they do. The Jews have excelled in everything they do. They become doctors and lawyers and they become rich. But what happens when you have the blessings of the Lord, but without a relationship with the Lord? The blessings turn into their own curse Israel has all this money and people want it Israel the Jews have all of this intelligence and the people say they've they've robbed it they've stolen it from other people so the blessing has turned into a curse because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and there's a point in time where God will end their punishment and bring them back and restore them to himself and that's what's being pictured it's a marvelous story of redemption but it is also your story God has not forsaken you when we're sitting here in coronavirus lockdown with people pulling on their faces and worried about every little thing that's going to happen to them tomorrow and the next day and for the next 10 years, we didn't know what was going to happen to us a day later, 10 years ago. We planned like it was always going to go on and we had no idea if it was going to go on or not. People die all the time thinking I'm going to go on vacation next year. It doesn't happen. So we're never in control of our future. So who cares about the coronavirus? Who cares about the economy collapsing? The Lord has you safely cared for that is the lesson that we are finding out of israel in the wilderness okay god loves you enough to take care of you i was talking to the guy who went to the scrap all yesterday take the recycles down there i fill up my truck i drive down the road and i pick up scrap metal all over the place i do it every wednesday that's shopping day for me and i fill up my truck and then i eventually separate it all into brass and copper and metal and everything and i put it up my dad must be flipping out because i got piles of it because i thought the scrap place was closed and they're open so i started going again i got all this stuff at the house but i uh was down at the scrap all place yesterday and i was talking to the guy and he's a christian and he said do you think that the lord who has created the entire universe and has everything so perfectly balanced from the smallest to the largest thing everything is perfectly balanced do you think that the lord has lost control of you absolutely not not in any way shape or form i'm glad to talk to people like that because he's so confident the world is falling apart around us and here he is telling people about jesus every single week it's wonderful to see okay i got a closing verse for you here from jeremiah 27 it is verse 5 i have made the earth the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. That's the God we serve. Okay. Next week is Deuteronomy 2, 13 through 23. They marched until all the rebels were gone. This was the date stamp. It's entitled from the midst of the camp. 
That'll be our seventh Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Everybody got that? Trust him. Trust him. He's, he's faithful. Trust him. I have a question for you before we get into our poem and take the Lord's Supper. Okay. I said that the Lord, that thing wants to take off. I said that the Lord gave the blessings and curses of Israel in Leviticus 26. They are very specific. Everything that he said would happen has happened. Everything that is tied in with Ezekiel chapter 4 as far as dating brings them right back to 14 May of 1948 and 7 June 1967. They recaptured the land and then they recaptured Jerusalem exactly as the Bible said. It all ties in perfectly. Okay. And at the end of Leviticus 26, he appeals not only to the promise to the fathers, but also to the Mosaic covenant, meaning He's not going to even break the Mosaic Covenant until he brings them into the promise of the fathers, okay? That's what the, re the replacement theologians miss, is they say, well, the promises are to the fathers and they were by faith. Well, that's true, but he still appeals to both covenants, not just one. So he cannot be rejecting Israel. He cannot be, okay? Having said that, Leviticus 26, the blessings and the curses are repeated in Leviticus 26, they are in the first person. If you don't do this, I, meaning the Lord, I will do this to you. I will do this to you. I will do this to you. They are repeated in Deuteronomy in the third person. The Lord will do this to you. The Lord will do this to you. The Lord will do this to you. He repeats it so they don't forget. What chapter of Deuteronomy is that in? I say this all the time. I bet you I've said it a thousand times in Bible studies. No. I think it's 27. You're very close. Add one and you'll get it. Hurry up. Hey, you got it. Here's Maserati for you. Good. Deuteronomy 28. As a matter of fact, when I was with mom in Israel at the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, in 2003, it was very moving, wasn't it? We went through and you see what they uh, went through. And when we came out, I said, there's one thing missing, one thing missing from Yad Vashem. A copy of Deuteronomy 28 printed in every nation that Israel has been exiled around the world because it never would have happened. Never, if they had been obedient and received Jesus Christ. That's not to blame the Jews. We're all in the same boat. We've all been rebellious. I'm not trying to say that they deserved it, but it would not have happened if they had obeyed the Lord and called on Jesus Christ. That's the only thing missing from Yad Vashem. Until somebody can accept personal responsibility for their actions, there is no redemption for those people. Okay, we talked about that in the Prophecy Update today. We got people that are in Rikers Island are being let out without serving their terms. What happens? They continue to show that they're not worthy of being let out. Israel has to accept personal responsibility for what they have violated in their own law. And when they do, they will call on Jesus and he will return to them and save them. Okay, you have skirted this mountain long enough. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days, as the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, these words he was then relaying, you have skirted this mountain long enough, turn northward, time to see some new stuff, and command the people, saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully so that they will not fear. 
Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Please understand. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, so you shall do. And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. Pay heed to what I am telling you. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. What you needed, you did possess. And when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elat and Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by way of the wilderness of Moab on that day. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. Against them make no aggression, for I will not give you as a possession any of their land, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Amim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them by the sword and dwelt in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which gave them the Lord. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful lesson of your faithfulness to an unfaithful people because as we sit here today, it reflects each one of us, saved by the blood of Christ and yet ever unfaithful at the things that we do in our lives. Help us to have our hearts turned fully towards you, but when we fail, as we will, we know that you will forgive because you are gracious and wonderful. And Lord, you know the names that we read at the beginning of this service and anyone else who's struggling out there with some type of affliction or fear or whatever, that you will be with them, help them through these things, give them relief and comfort and curing if it's your will, and if not, help them to understand that that is also your will, that you have a plan for us that sometimes doesn't match what we desire. Help us to be responsible in this attitude, knowing that you do care for us and you do love us through all afflictions. And we love you and we praise you. And we do so, we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.